0: Now we're really two of us.
1: Can we put a little surgical?
0: Tape on? I think this is all right. Can you hear me fine? Yeah. Can, can,
2: you can you hear? Okay. Yeah. It's up to you.
0: <laughs> Did you put that apparatus? Okay.
1: Am I, am I working? too? Can you guys hear me? Not so good. Not so good. I guess where I is, guess it? That's the, uh, is
2: it? Here?
1: They need to
0: turn a knob. So, this is my very good friend, uh, Tony Bernhardt. I was trying to remember what year we met, you have any idea?
1: I was was thinking about it the other day too. I think it was about 1990 or 91, something like that.
0: Because we were certainly back in the very old days of the first days here. I remember when you and Tony and I met in a back room in that old... um, what do you call it, um, makeshift, uh, that old office for those old portables. Oh, right, yeah. Do you Um, remember that? The trailers. The trailers. Yeah. And that was at the end of a day of teaching, and I don't remember what we... I remember that the three of us were back there talking. And Tony has come, uh, my friend Tony, among many, many particularly wonderful things about him, uh, was also unique to him is his wife's name is also Tony, and also a uh, also a student of Dharma, and a writer of three Dharma books now published: How to Be Sick, How to Be Well, and How to Be Happy. How to Wake Up. How to Wake Up, and they all of them say the essence of Buddha Dharma uh, in different ways, and all of them quite personal to Tony and to us and. Uh, the kind of people that you are who really want to know how does this work in my daily life. So Tony and I have sat next to each other at many, many, many (laughs) retreats. And uh, I'll let him tell you more about himself right away. But the reason he's here uh, just now is he and I have been talking recently about certain questions that come up in my mind. I've been talking to you about questions in my mind. I've I've been saying, and this goes on Dharma Seed, You know, everything you say today is going to go out all over the whole world, so that's it. Uh, And I've been saying, this is the winter of my discontent. For 30 or 40 years I've been saying, when the mind is calm and clear, the heart is open and compassionate. I've been saying it because it's my experience, I'm saying it also because it sounds good and people like it. And all of a sudden, I've been, and I wish it were true. I wish it were true because then if it were true, we could really be hopeful that we would calm down the whole world one way or another and they'd start taking care of each other. This winter, for one reason or another, I began really from reading Stephen Batchelor, who said, you never know what scrim you're thinking through. You never know what's the uh, context of your mind that interprets things. I interpret my experience that way because that's how I feel, that's how my parents behaved, that's how my community behaved, that's how my friends behaved. That's why I pick them to be friends. But maybe plenty of people have terrible friends who, when their minds are clear, do great crimes. I don't know. And Tony is usually my, my, my fact-checker on thinking clearly, because he is he more than I has been studying with the newest um, group iteration of Buddhist scholars now studying the really the originals the original texts of many uh, in in many languages so he'll tell you something about that so we're talking about uh, so he and I were talking about how to see through what. Um, through what lenses I am not seeing clearly? So I said, "Why don't you come and we'll talk about that." In addition to that, Tony, in his life now, he was previously for his uh, salaried life uh, the elected commissioner of elections. Is that what
1: you were? No, yeah, I was a county clerk.
0: Nah, that sounds better, commissioner. It was a clerk. <laughs> All right, he was a county clerk of Yoho, not Yoho, Yolo. Yoho, Yolo, Yolo County. Uh, there is a representative now. Yoho, did you, did you hear him on the news recently? Mm-mm. In all these, you know, news programs every day, it says Representative Yoho. <laughs> and I, I think if I wanted to be a public official, I would change my name. <laughs> it just sounds so much like a clown name. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I thought we'd have a conversation. I said, why don't you come, instead of you going and talking about it, you come and we will talk about it. So if that's all right with you, we will talk about that. And we'll particularly talk about Tony's uh, new particular specialty, which is working with um, uh, incarcerated felons at uh, Folsom, Uh, people who have done quite some terrible things and working with them around issues of developing mindfulness. So, is that alright with you? You want to do that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's good, because that's the plan. <laughs> uh, so, we didn't. We have certain ritual things. Do you always do that when you're here? Do you always say, who here is new, who's never been here before? Yeah. Yeah. You, t- you prompt him. You say, do that. Who here is new, who has never been here before? What's your name? Hi Sylvia,
2: healthy again. Oh, well, good, good. Welcome back.
1: Well, it's my first time in this
2: building. Whoa, right? (laughs) My last year
1: was 12 years
0: ago, and this was a hillside 12 years ago. I came here every week in 2002. Well, that's terrific. Come back. What's your name? Jonathan Harvey. Well, good. Well. We did. Okay. No, no. I, I
1: recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> for what that's worth.
0: <laughs> well, welcome back. You'll teach me the chant. We'll chant again. Who else is here for the first time? Alexandra. Alexandra, from where? I live in San Francisco. Thank you for coming. Julia. Julia? Okay. From France. From France. Where in France? Paris. Paris. Are you here visiting? Training. What is your training? Coaching. Oh wow. Are you here with the Marine Coaching Institute? No. So you know other people here who are I Okay, well I'm glad you're here.
2: Who else? Oh, you are from Victoria, or you are Victoria? No, you're from Victoria, <laughs> British Columbia. What's your name? Karen. Karen. Wow. Wow.
0: Sometime it will be a long story about why we were there 22 years and why did you come back. Anyway. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Who else? Yeah? My name's Allison. Alice? Allison? Allison. I'm way down in the South Bay. Good for
0: you. And Anna I met last week was here, so we've met. No, not the first time, no, no. Everybody who's first time has met. Welcome to everybody. The next thing that we do, uh, that's part of our ritual, is we say, okay, oh, and this is Tony, I introduced him, I am Sylvia. We use the next two minutes for you to introduce yourself to some people around you, particularly people you don't know, so that they feel welcome and they've said something, ready, Said go. One of the really fun things that um, this is in the way of telling you how we have structured uh, this morning is ex- I was going to say we haven't but in a certain way we have, but in this way, uh, the first part of the morning, until almost 11 o'clock, has always been, and will be, periods of contemplative practice. And uh, in a moment I'll suggest to uh, Tony that he leads a meditation with all of you, and he'll talk some in a meditation that he wants to share with you, and you'll you'll be doing it. And uh, 15 or 20 minutes after he starts, which might include some period of quiet at the end of it, for you to be practicing that, I'll give you an instruction for the next 15 minutes or so, And at the end of that, we'll do our um, ritual mentioning of people whose health or well-being we're thinking about. And then it'll be the end of that contemplative hour. In the second hour, we uh, purposely did not prepare two speeches. We've been talking about certain topics, he and I, and we decided that the conversation on the telephone was so interesting, that we said, let's just have this conversation in front of that group. They could all listen to us talk. that will be way more interesting than us finishing up and coming to a conclusion. Look at everybody. Yesing, you see that? That was a good idea. (laughs) Okay. So, get on your mark. (laughs) We're pretty playful here. Okay. All right. So sometimes
1: when I'm, when I'm teaching in the prison, often I, I have some guys that I'm only going to see once. And so I try to create an intense kind of experience and provide as much information as I can about the practice in just 15, 20 minutes of, of uh, instruction. So I thought I would, I would work through a little bit of that this morning and just give you, you guys a sense of, I don't know, mindfulness from 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 where I sit, so um, I remind the guys that uh, we 're going to try to pay attention to the experience that 's present for us, and then I have them close their eyes so if you can close your eyes and feel your body from the inside with your mind let 's feel the energetic of the body, and notice how the feeling is not a feeling of solidity particularly, and it's not the same in all places. You can notice your feet on the floor, your butt on the seat, your hands. Maybe some places in the body where there's tension or discomfort or even pain.
3: The idea is to just notice what's present. No need to make any change to the way things are. Just to notice how they
1: are in your experience. And as you're feeling the sensations of the body, let your attention find its way to the sensations of your breathing. Whatever sensations they are
2: that let you know whether the breath is coming in or going out.
3: So we use the breath. The sensations of the breath for two purposes in this
1: practice. The first is to provide a place to rest our attention
3: when it gets lost.
2: So we let the attention rest on the breathing. It usually doesn't take very long before the
1: mind drifts off to follow a thought or listen to a sound or attend to a sensation in the body. When we become aware that the attention has drifted, we just gently return the attention to the sensations of the breathing. And because the tendency of the mind is to drift... The practice is to return again and again. Sort of like lifting weights.
2: Back to the breath again and again. The second way we use the
3: sensations of the breath is to sharpen our ability to pay attention,
1: particularly to physical sensations. Just notice how the sensations of the in-breath feel different from the
2: sensations of the out-breath. You were asked to describe the difference between the feeling of the in-breath
1: and the out-breath in words. You might find it challenging, but it's easy enough to know whether the breath is coming in or going out, just directly
2: knowing If we look a little closer, we can notice that the sensations
3: of the in-breath are different at the beginning, the middle, and the end.
2: The same is true for the out-breath. Sometimes people
3: notice a space between the end of the out-breath and the beginning of the in-breath, sometimes not. Notice how it is for you with these breaths. If we look even more closely, we can notice that every moment the sensation
1: of the breath is slightly different from the moment just before and the moment after. And the sensations of the breathing are an uninterrupted series of changing sensations
2: happening on their own. coming and going on its own. As our attention rests with our breathing, we can also notice the sounds that are present. Like the rising and falling of the breath, the sounds happen on their own. Unlike the sensations of the breathing, we can pay closer
3: or broader attention to the sensations or to the sounds that are present.
2: coming and going on their own. Breath
3: coming and going on its own. And thoughts
2: arising and passing on their own. We become as mindful as we can
3: and let things take their natural course. The mind will become like a still forest pool. Many strange and wonderful animals will come and drink at the pool and we can observe them and come to know the nature of all things.
2: Many wonderful animals will come and go, but we will
3: remain still.
2: This is the happiness of the Buddha. your mind feels quite steady and content, do
0: exactly what you're doing. All the instructions for working with breath, with working with attention to the mind and what's happening, attention to the body, as it moves in response to air going in and out of it, are all not to become more skilled as pulmonologist or anatomist,
2: but to be more skilled as payers of attention.
0: Another way to approach paying attention that doesn't start exactly with the breath is to start with the mind, just as it's e- at ease, which yours may be now, from what you've been practicing until now. One of my friend's instructions is let the mind rest in its own peace and ease. Leave it alone. Only be alert to anything that arises to disturb that peace and
2: ease. so, the instruction is to sit with the mind in its own
0: peace and ease, feeling it, enjoying it, maybe having the awareness, peace and ease. This is peace and ease. This is pretty cool. Pleasant. You don't need to effort a lot don't need to know what is happening as much as this is a feeling tone about this situation. And from time to time, there will be things that arise in the mind. The sound of a cough, the sound of
3: people moving, a thought arising in your mind.
0: That's just really a uh, normally being alive with senses. They're always poised to record what's happening. Thought, or a bang, or a creak. Be able to be awake like an antenna that notices everything. And because it has a bottom line steadiness that you've cultivated, it doesn't startle so much. So we'll sit a little bit. Sit just with peace and ease. You can say to yourself, peace and ease. And notice from time to time there's a thought and it's gone. And there's another thought that has gone. There's a twitch or a throb or something in the body. It's not a problem. So it just comes and goes out of awareness. If you find that some particular event that arises captivates your mind, startles it into captivation. I really wish I could scratch my ear, it's so itchy, or I wonder how long we've been sitting and what are we going to do next. Any kind of a thought that mildly upsets the peace and ease just to notice it, and if you want to, you can say to yourself, relax. I love that there's a teacher in the Midwest whose name is Vimala Ramsey, and his chief instruction is relax. What's ever going on in your mind?
2: Just relax. Doesn't mean that you never do anything in response to a
0: thought or a feeling. It really means you're training the mind not to compulsively respond to each stimulus. Relax, can wait. To, mop, to not make a stimulus an imperative. I really think that the mind without imperatives is a mind that's free of suffering. So we'll just sit for a few more minutes, mind
2: free of imperatives. And in our last
0: minutes of sitting together, maybe you'd like to mention into the group space names of people who, for reasons of special delight in their lives, or reasons of special difficulty in their lives, you're thinking about... um, I find when I sit still and my mind is at ease, it most easily gravitates to the people that I know that I care about a lot, that are in some difficulty. So I'm a lot thinking about my friend Rachel, who has finished four of her six weeks of chemo and is getting more and more tired, but still holding up and still good-humored and good-attituded about it. She likes to know that all of us are thinking
2: about her. Who are you thinking about? very good friend thing, I was not in New York for the funeral, but uh
3: um, <coughs> the service, he had magic markers for everyone to write on his casket, and I, he got the right, I Love You Myron, for me,
2: which was fantastic. I've never heard it before, it was his idea, it was really a, uh, love to my son who's in You have the ringer, so I'll tell you, don't
0: ring yet. You can say with me, or you can add to this invocation. I always say something like, as I'm listening, for that part of our sharing together, I, I always think that it's a better Dharma talk than anything that I could possibly give that, about the, the, the nature of suffering in our lives, and how everybody who shared, and everybody who said someone's name and story, And everybody who thought about sharing and decided not to do it had in their mind somebody that they cared about and loved. And that even though we all know that everyone shares the fact that we lose everyone who's dear to us, finally, if they don't lose us first. And even though we know that, it still is so painful when it's happening to us. And when other people talk about it, we hope as they are hoping that the passage of their person be one that's filled with consolation
3: and support and love and attention.
2: I sometimes find it very helpful
0: as if this is what the world does. It, It takes care of each other and mourns for each other as it will take care of me and mourn for me in my time. That, that's, what, that's the kind of company that we keep each other. That's the nature of, of sangha. And the great thing of telling each other is reminding each other that we're not alone. Everybody's got it. Everybody's kind to each other. The end of the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye says, everything is suffering and everybody gets up in the morning and puts on their socks and goes out again and posts a letter and buys some bread. And that's what we do.
2: You add something and ring the bell.
3: The kindness of the heart when hearing, hearing about suffering in others, and open to ourselves as well. recognize in our own trials to address ourselves the same way we would address others
1: which is sort of the opposite do unto others the way you'd have them do unto you but do
3: unto you the way you'd do unto others as well
0: I really do think it's the most potent thing of the whole morning, that, that five minutes that we sit and listen to each other, which is why I, um, I don't plan for us to have a, a sort of a formal break, and I assume that everybody would use the facilities as they need to, and we can just talk out of this quiet and intimate space to each other. I am glad that you came today, Jean. I, Jean and I visited yesterday, and we talked about whether she'd feel like it today. She and I have a special bond because we went to the same women's college. She went earlier than I did, but we remember the same deans and the same professors and the same slogans. and So we always have what to talk about. <laughs> So, we, you and I are going to talk. Did you have an order in your mind? We had all kinds of things we were going to talk about uh, after Buddhism or where we are in the getting I, of that. I
1: thought we. I'd see what comes up.
0: Oh. But I want you to talk about the Folsom thing. Okay. This is what we used for a Haggadah last night. For our, uh, instead of talking about the uh, Israelites who were refugees from Egypt, we are talking about the fact that there are 600 795 million refugees in the world at this moment going somewhere from some place that they can't live anymore, looking for some place that people can have them
1: One one of my dearest friends is involved in refugee resettlement in Sacramento You, You don't think of it, people come with nothing nothing, not a plate not a cup not a bed sheet um and they're arriving by the thousands, really, despite what the media would suggest. And there are organizations, interfaith organizations, all over where you can plug in and provide transportation, provide some acculturation, help meet with these people. So
0: We talked about it, but should we make it so you and I are looking a little bit more at each other? Yeah, OK. okay. Because I want to say to you, we talked about that at a Sato last night. Everybody said, what could we do? And we didn't know the next step. Who would I phone And if I said, listen, I want to be available to... Uh, in, in this
1: neck of the woods, I'm not sure, but I, I'm sure you can find it by Googling. It's not, it, you know, people aren't trying to hide. So if there's refugee work that's going on, for some reason Sacramento is, is receiving a large number of people.
0: Because we thought, well, somebody had the idea of, uh, someone said that uh, ICE agents were apprehending people who have been living here for 20 years, and have jobs, and have families, and just... That's been going on all along. So we said, what if there was an alert line, and someone said that's happening, and we went individually and handcuffed ourselves to somebody and said they take him, they have to take me.
1: Then you'd get arrested with them.
0: But that would get in the that would get it in might. The, it might get in the papers. It might, yeah. It might be like one of the protests that we've done together.
3: Yeah. Hard to know when they're going to show up, though. Yeah.
0: We talked also. They also.
1: There's only one one kind of handcuff key. They're all the same. Well, you know, you. you if one guy locks them up, somebody else has got to be able to unlock them. So there's one key, so that you can lock yourself to them, but you'd have to get specially made handcuffs or they'll just
0: unlock you. Oh, oh. Well, I, I come to think of it, I mean, that's an interesting thing. But, I mean, you could do it. It's a doable thing, as you know. Of all the things that we talked about yesterday, are people fundamentally good or not good? What are you doing in Folsom? That's your interesting work at least. Where do you think Buddhism is in its evolution in the West? Topic A, B, and C. Where do you want to start? Uh, (laughs) Where do you want to start? Are people
1: fundamentally good
0: or bad? Are people fundamentally good or bad? My
1: opinion? Well, I have an opinion. (laughs) I, I actually don't think that people have an essence, so people aren't fundamentally anything. In some environments we are good, in some we are, we are, are not. And um, you know it has to do our, what the behavior that shows up is a mixture of our past conditioning, our genetic uh, uh, inheritance and, and the environment and the environment we perceive. We may not perceive things as they are. Oh my gosh. We hardly ever do. In fact, we probably don't at all. <laughs> so well, that's my thats my, my story. I'm sticking to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, just to give a little background for those people who haven't been here, uh, one of the things that I've been saying in teaching for the last 15, 20 years, uh, since I actually learned... Wait a minute, this is a question. This is, I'm, I'm starting to answer a question that you didn't even ask me, but you said you might, so now I'm going to put your question in there. Okay. You said this morning when we talked, well, last night or whenever it was we talked, you said, I'm going to ask you what was a, a certain seminal moment in your whole practice. So when did you start? I started seventy seven.
1: Oh Well, you know, it's hard to segment things out. I started doing intensive retreat practice about when my when my kids got out of high school, which would have been about 1990, but I I picked up D.T. Suzuki in 1965 and said, I mean he was a Rinzai Zen, he was a fan of Rinzai Zen, and I kept thinking, what do you have to know to get the answers to these koans?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you, do you have to
1: not know? But yeah.
0: but and those are interesting anyway because once you know them. I mean, there's a book now called "Answers to to Yeah, they
1: won't they won't take they won't take crib answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what what actually? That's a whole other story. I'm not suppo- I'm not sure how you're supposed to show up to pass a zen. Is it an authenticity or is it?
1: Well, you could be authentically delusioned.
0: Oh, wait, I make it easy, maybe. Uh, everybody knows the one about what is the sound of one hand clapping. So for most people in normal discourse, you ask them what is the sound of one hand clapping, you say that's like what's the square root of minus one. It doesn't exist. The sound of one hand clapping also doesn't exist because you need two hands to clap. Oh, well, what isn't the sound of one hand clapping? See, just like the Zen people, they don't make any sense at all. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> uh, oh. but actually, the, you want to know the sound. You you want to know the sound of one hand clapping.
1: No, see, see, they won't buy those answers.
0: Yeah, no, no.
1: no. Right, this, they don't go for this either.
0: Yeah, but I think. Or they, this. <laughs> but I think that the must the the answer must be, I have no idea. Well,
1: that's an answer.
0: Well, yeah, but. Uh,
1: you know, um, so I, I was I've I've become convinced that some of those people know, and that the answer what isn't is probably is not too bad.
0: So maybe but who knows? M- there's
1: somebody listening may- to the uh, to the recording at mm. Dharma Seed who's going to send me an email.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe that's the idea. Maybe the idea is to confront. The fact that we that we depend, for the most part, on logical thinking. I think that's
1: I think that's a good part of it. There's a, there's an effort to undermine the reliance on 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 our conceptual uh, life, and so that it pushes the, the Cohen's coens push uh, at the edge of of uh, intelligibility, actually.
0: Well, because here, this is, you know, there's an intimate audience, but it's going to go out on the entire dharma seed again. But I probably mentioned that one of my spiritual, um, God, I can't believe I'm telling the world. One of my spiritual um, uh, challenges coming up on Passover was uh, thinking about the visit of uh, a family member who voted differently from me, uh, that... uh, uh, who came and went. And uh, <laughs> and, I, and I worried about this person. It's my brother-in-law, for goodness sake. And he arrived for four days and moved in with us. And I feel strongly about that last vote. And I have views about people who vote that way. But I also know this guy since he's nine years old. And I was determined to not have any amount of ill will come into our... Transactions for four days that uh, meant hanging around with him and going out for meals. How'd you do? Great. I did great. And I felt wonderful about it because I was determined to see him as the nine-year-old that I remember and the young boy who was the <coughs> best man at my wedding, but he wasn't even a man at the time. And uh, the sweet things that he's done for me in the past and I just did not bring up the whole question, and, is it, and I took a vow I'm not going to talk politics with him. So I wasn't worried about, uh oh, what if it? I just didn't do it. And it, what it allowed is it pushed out of my mind all of those stories. Yeah. And if I pushed out all those stories, he's just the same guy I knew when he was nine. When I was able to tell myself he made stupid decisions when he was nine, made a stupid decision now, that's all. You know, so it didn't become like a. An unforgivable act. What?
1: Yeah, when you're focusing on the stupid decisions, you get get reactive different than when you're thinking about... You know, the advantage here is you've got some frame of reference other than his opinions and views.
0: Yeah, well, uh, even stupid decisions... Because we just
1: focus on those views and opinions, and what's going to we like deer in the headlights.
0: Yeah, well, and it'll be so bad because he'll say this, Uh. and then I'll say that. Uh, But I I was wrong to say stupid opinions other opinions. (laughs) Because when, when all is said and done, when I'm not doing that, I think to myself, well, you know, we don't know how it's going to turn out with this president yet. We don't know anything about that. You know, I've, it's a whole story that I'm projecting on him that because you personally voted that way, the whole world is going to come to a bad end. And if I push that out of the mind, it was lovely to spend the weekend with him. He helped me set up the whole house. He was very helpful, pleasant. His children are my nieces and nephews. Oh. Why well, you look skeptical.
1: I'm uh, actually I was wondering what was your seminal experience in uh, your spiritual.
0: Well, it might be no, it's not. <laughs> I was un- off
1: I was on another I was back on the original. It's not
0: unconnected to my seminal experience because I think it has to do with my practice of metta which is if people say to me what do you do now what's your spiritual practice? My spiritual practice is mindfulness of the presence of absence of ill will in my mind and the determination to not have ill will in my mind and to get it out if it's in my mind and cultivate it if it isn't there.
1: Yeah, look for the suffering. It's always there. What? Look for
0: the suffering
1: and and you get out of the ill will.
0: The suffering in that, yes. In others, yeah. Of course. In your brother-in-law. Yeah, if I stop that and I think to myself, his, his life is difficult in many ways as a result of many decisions that he's made. And I can think to myself, I really, I, you know, I knew him when he was nine, poor thing. I wish he was having a better life. But I really do honestly think that. But that actually was a seminal moment because uh, until then, I actually thought that metapractice practice was a kind of a, um, half-baked, sissy practice. Do you remember learning it in the beginning? Uh, Yeah. Did you think it was a sissy practice?
1: Um, I wouldn't have described it quite that way, but um, it it didn't appeal to me.
0: But it didn't appeal to me either. Why did it not appeal to you? It's a lovely practice. Yeah. (laughs) Well, why did it not appeal?
1: The phrase, like, chewing cardboard was sort of... um, you know, that sort of uh, was how it felt to me, you know. I and 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 since then, my understanding has evolved so much. I think meta is a full path to awakening as the Buddha understood it, and I think that the hard path got got relegated to a second tier status with oh, what two millennia of monks, mm. you know. But if you if you look at the The metta the the lines are, you know, this is the. the
0: This is the sole way, monk. This is
1: the path of peace. This is this is the way of nibbana. There are some, you know, it's it's a full it's a full
0: path. This is what should be done by one who's skilled in peace and skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Yeah. And it's, I just this morning wrote an essay on it. to say that it was the whole instructions for the whole entire practice. It mirrors up to the, the, yeah. the whole sila samadhi panya up to the end, not born again into suffering.
1: Yeah, the, the word, the the phrase Brahma-Vahara, which means, Vahara is just dwelling place, a place to live, and Brahma would be the chief of the gods. At the time of the Buddha, that would... You know, the Brahma Vihara. A Brahma Vihara would have been the highest imaginable spiritual attainment to be able to abide with Brahma. So, when the Buddha talks about the Brahma Viharas, he's talking about the awakened states. But if you if you talk with people in the tradition now, there's a sense you 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 can you can find people saying, "Well, no, the Brahma Viharas will only get you to the Brahma realms, but Nibbana is something." So, the wisdom side is really. Uh, privileged, and I think uh, it distorts the Buddhist teaching. I think the heart side is right there, and you can you can come at it from the heart side or the or the wisdom side or both together.
0: I'm very interested in what I think was your uh, um, nuance when you said two thousand years of monastic practice, because it's not uh, relational affect is not is not. Um, um, uh, emphasized mm-hmm. in um, monastic practice whereas seeing through the uh, emptiness of momentary arisings
1: I, I think one of the things that westerners are bringing to Buddhism is is the perspective of lay life because at the time when, when you had the, the monastery and the laity but most lay people didn't have time to do any really uh, serious spiritual practice, meditation, and study. And study's an important, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely critical, I think. Uh, there's a story about the Dalai Lama going to bless some ashram in India, and when he was shown around the ashram, he said, well, where's the library? And they said, no, no, it was the meditation center. And he refused because he said, you gotta have a library.
0: Got a library, and you got to study, and you have to debate it and talk about it.
1: You know, yeah. And one of the things I found at working in the in a prison context, uh, I teach in a in a in a um, a format. I meet with guys two hours a week in a small group, three, maybe four, two uh, two hours a week, and they're not going to sit. I mean, if they sat for forty five minutes, when they're not going to do that. They sit for 20 minutes or half an hour. That's a lot of conversation. And a lot of what I can do is to point their, their attention in particular directions. So when you p- follow your breath, pay attention to this, pay attention to that. And rather than sitting and watching and waiting to see what comes up. You know, the, the idea of, of meditating by uh, recalling metaphrases, for example. Now, I regard that now as an insight practice if you try to conjure goodwill for someone who's very difficult what you get are all the objections everything arises in your mind and so it's a, it's an opportunity to study what's in the way.
0: You do that with those guys? I do. How do you do that?
1: Well we you know we talk about um, well, it's, it's an interesting thing because I can't in the mental health context I can't say, Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. So I've had to um, reframe or recast the, the Buddha's teachings in street language. And we were talking about this yesterday. Um, I, I actually find it more convenient now to talk in street language. What's the first noble truth, the truth of suffering? You know, the
0: Should I say it in a regular way? And then you'll say it in your review. Oh, sure. Today. Go ahead. That'll be okay. fine. The first noble truth is um, life is inevitably challenging.
1: Shit happens.
0: <laughs> Second noble truth is um, uh, suffering arises when the mind is unable to uh, what suffering arises when uh, changing the state of mind that 's present is an imperative when the mind is unable to accept what 's happening.
1: We usually make
0: things worse that 's the second noble truth. <laughs> the third noble truth is peace is possible.
1: yeah we don 't have to
0: <laughs> And the fourth noble truth is there is a path of study and practice to come to the end of suffering.
1: Yeah, here's how. First <laughs> here's how. First first element, be realistic. That is stand in for the for right view. Be realistic. And then, you know, don't be dumb, be smart. That's r- right intention. And then speech, action, livelihood don't make things worse. And I think that the message that has, you know, is, is floats in the, in the groups that I work with and the guys that I work with, they're the strongest, is don't make things worse. They hear that phrase and they go, oh, I, know, I can work on that. And I've had people describe ways in which they've stopped in the middle of some action and said, I, I heard the voice saying, don't make things worse. Don't make things worse. I actually think that that's the, you know, if not the deepest, It's right there with the deepest of the Buddha's teachings, tanha. Don't add that into the mix. Don't add the products of of grasping and craving greed, hatred, and delusion. Don't add them into the mix. It makes things worse. And if you take that out of the mix, everything automatically is better. And we can't necessarily make things better because everything is problematic. Everything is uncertain. So the only thing we can really control is... What we, you know, our our effort to not make it worse, and sometimes that means just sitting still.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I think that that's really the key issue when I teach about what happens in the mind when something happens. Uh, what is mindfulness, or what happens from practicing uh, steadily? This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. This is arising in me. Is being able to identify what's happening. Identify what's happening in me and thinking, wait a minute, what am I going to do about this? You know what story I, I, I tell a lot? Because everybody knows I, I like to go, um, I, I like to hear opera a lot. And in every opera, mostly every opera that I go to, because opera doesn't fool around with nuances, they get seriously <laughs> involved in the first act. And, uh, I'm usually sitting right next to Seymour, and I've got a program in my hand. And ten minutes into the singing, I reach over and I take the pencil out of his, pen, pen out of his inside pocket so I can write the words down. So the regent of this country is singing away about his daughter's gonna marry the, uh, son of the next door property in order to, they can an- annex it and end his money problems because he left twice as much. Land and his servant comes in and says he is the new sire. She doesn't want to marry him. She's fallen in love with somebody else. And then he sings in one little aria in rapid succession, Anger is arising in me. Then two sentences later, I'm in a rage. And three sentences later is speak to me of nothing but vengeance. And nothing, and I and I like to tell people. The first line is mindful awareness. Anger is arising in me. Then you could stop maybe and say, you know what? I better just look out the window, take a few deep breaths, call my daughter, talk it over with her, explain the situation, figure out the consequences. But instead of that, it goes, anger is arising in me. I'm in a rage. Speak to me of nothing but vengeance, which is what we mostly do. Zero to 60,
1: yeah, you know, one of the things, one, I, one of the, I'm, I'm going to c- come back to prison because I I spend a whole lot of time there, and uh, it really has been been honing my my practice and teaching a lot. We've started measuring things, subjective things, because the Dharma is pretty subjective. It's a, sub, you know, it's about it's like a stubbed toe or the feeling of the breath. It's just really subjective, so we measure things. How angry are you at this particular moment? For guys who have anger control problems, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10. You can go to the doctor and say, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain? People can do that. When you're angry, how angry on a scale of 1 to 10? When you want something, how how badly do you want it on a scale of 1 to 10? It's a way of bringing mindfulness. It works with them? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they're at a different start, they're at a different place. They're not, um, yeah, they're at a different place.
0: But didn't you tell me one time recently that one of the men in one of your groups said, It's a good thing that I'm handcuffed. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, a lot of the, uh, Folsom is a maximum security facility. And in the mental health area, there are a lot of people in solitary. And I work with those guys. And I meet with them, and they come. They come to me in cages, Um, think large phone booth with a little seat and a little table and um, a cage. Now, my first reaction was kind of shock, but after a while, I think, oh my gosh, these things. uh, They call them therapeutic modules, and I thought, what a euphemism. But really, it's the only. You're not going to go into an inmate's cell. Nobody goes into their cell. They come out of the cell before you go in. It's just too dangerous. I had one guy tell me, "Oh, this pr- the practice had saved his life, and he was just doing great." He said, "But I've still got these anger issues. He, all, after all our practice, anybody still got anger issues?" So his anger issues are he spent all morning one week thinking about how to lure a guard into his cell so he could stab him. Yep. So you know, that's so an issue. That's an issue. <laughs> I, I I used so I was meeting with one of these guys. Uh, in a in a in a module, and I used the expression "It is what it is." Not not out of line. It's a dharma thing, right? I mean, and well, he leapt off the seat and hit the front of the cage, screaming. It turns out later that uh, this is a phrase that one of the guards used with him all the time when he meant just suck it up, and then you know. Her, you harass him in one way or another. And he told me later, he said, it's a good thing I'm in this cage. He said, otherwise you say something, I'll hurt you.
0: That's a very short in-between.
1: Yeah. It was unbelievably fast. I was, I I just, and I, you know, some of these guys, they, you know, the guys in the cages, one guy was complaining last week about his arm, his shoulder. He said, I just, every, you know, the guards keep putting me down because I keep fighting with them. And I'm thinking, well, you know, don't do that, but he's not able to not.
0: So one of the things that I ask you, always want to ask a question.
1: So do you think they're angry at themselves or angry at the world? One thing I found is that none of these guys had a childhood which would allow them to feel safe. And none of them feel that the world, I've, you know, there may be some, but I haven't experienced any who feel that the world is likely to meet their needs. But it's not safe, so they've never been calm. There's a lot of anger, huge amounts of anger, um, and a lot of suspicion. Uh, is the anger at the world or at themselves? You know, it's, anger is the way you... My dog says, don't come near my bone. you know, and, and anger is coming out of there it's it's both. It's both.
3: hmm
2: That they had and I knew mm-hmm. that, you know, that
1: um Yeah. You know, each of those kids. Yeah. They could not really in their environment. You know, I I, I you know, guys who have been in juvenile hall since they've been 13 incarcerated since they've been 13, and they're now 50. And they got, and they wound up in juvenile custody because they were picked on, lived in the projects, were picked on and bullied, and their response was to fight back more viciously to make them stop. And then, of course, you can't let them hang out in school, and it goes from there. Or, you know, uh, a guy who goes to prison for a third strike and sits down to lunch the first day, and somebody comes up and spits in his food. I own you. And he just launched himself at the guy, and pretty soon he's in a maximum security facility. And, uh, you know, it's, the, the environment is not conducive. There's not a lot of joy
2: there, not a lot of beauty. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I used that example just to 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 no, yeah.
2: You know, this is a this is a really thank you, actually. It's an
0: also important question because it goes back to the whole thing of are people born a certain way or born another way? Are we good or not good or what you said before? Which I think was a, a really, uh, I, th- I think it's the best we know that people are born and they have neurology and they have different neurology and they have different genes. And then they have different kinds of environmental things that act on them including, um, I've been learning, whether you, bo- you grow up in Pittsburgh or in, uh, in Bolinas, because in Pittsburgh the air is full of coal soot, and in Bolinas the air is clear and it's healthy to breathe. And everything combines in your growing up so that in a particular time you'll make the response that you do. It really has been for me a pivotal Part all of that, I think, is not not part of uh, my understanding that everybody is doing the only thing that they can in any circumstance. So that I like the idea of no villains and no victims. We're just all haplessly, in a certain way, we're billiard balls on a on a on a pool table, getting batted around. That's not a very holy image, but
1: not I. I I don't have a problem with that. I think that that we are born with certain dispositions and the Buddha identified them. He identified them phenomenologically, subjectively. But we're born wanting to survive. You know, what is fear about Except, you know, we want to survive. Buddha said, bhavatana, becoming. We want to become. We want to become something. Anything is better than nothing. We want to become something, and of course we want that something to advance our chances of survival in the future. Bhavatana, built into us. Kamatana, we, how do we navigate? We don't come with an instruction manual. We come with parents.
0: And some of them are better with instruction manuals than others. <laughs>
1: well, you know, um, yeah. So we navigate in terms of wanting, in terms of pleasant and unpleasantness. Kamatana. The, the craving, the desire, the underlying tendency, its not, it doesn't even manifest this way. But th- to want our experience pleasant, we prefer pleasant experience. That's how we, you know, when we imagine pleasant something in the future and we aim at that and we use the horsepower in our brain to figure that out. Vibhavatana. People, this is, we don't like the unpleasant stuff. Make it go away.
0: And some people from birth, you remember when you had children, some people uh, absorb... Uh, uh, this is uh, it, I have uh, 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 two of my children. Uh, since one of them's here, I won't mention which ones they were. <laughs> two two of my children were born with these opposite kinds of nervous systems. One of them, you would say, you know, I I'm, I'm really sorry to say we we're going to go to the movies this afternoon at one. I know I promised the movies today at one, but something has come up and we can't go to the movies, so we have to postpone it till next week. And that particular person at four, certainly by five, but at four, would say, okay, next week. And the person B, you'd say, can't go to the movies, da-da-da-da. You promised. You said, but you said, I knew we were going, and you said. And, you know, uh, they just were born that way. It fell out in other kinds of things other people have. Sure.
2: Yeah, we're people all different.
0: are People are conflict avoidant. People are conflict not avoidant. They like that. It makes them. Uh, it makes them excited. Uh, they love a good debate. I never. I didn't. When I was a child, I didn't like to play Monopoly because I don't like to win and I don't like to lose because it makes me feel bad if I win because the other person feel bad and I feel bad if I lose because I lost. I don't play chess very much. I don't play competitive games. I grew up, I learned to ski and ride bikes and things that you weren't doing, competing with other people, next to other people. Are you competitive? I think. Yeah? <laughs> My husband I ran also. for
1: office four times, I guess you got to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you give speeches? Oh, yeah. Did you get nervous when you heard other people well, say... You-
1: you know, it it changed over time. It was a, over a 15, 20-year period. And so at, at first I, would, I was just tight with tension and fear and, you know, the outline in my head and the day before. And now I just, you know, I, and not just now, but after a while I, I just didn't bother. Because really I thought, I, I thought people were paying more attention to me than they were. <laughs> Everybody's absorbed in themselves, so you know, don't pay attention to you.
0: So, I have two more questions anyway. I have two more questions to ask you, and then we can talk about anything else, but I want to be sure to ask them. First of all, I always talk to you, I always use you as my example of the person who listens to vituperative talk radio as a spiritual practice.
1: It's boring did, now. Did you, huh? It's boring to me now.
0: Do you all know about that? You want to know the story that I tell people always. Yes. Okay. The story I tell people always is my friend Tony leaves his job in Sacramento at five, and he drives to Davis at five, where he gets there at five thirty, and in between, he turns his radio on to a commentator whose name I won't mention, who is of a different persuasion politically than Tony or I are. And his style is vituperative and um, confrontative. Nasty. Nasty. And he does that purposely. I myself, when I turn on the radio in the car, if it's accidentally the voice of somebody who I don't even approve of, not even vituperative radio, but let's say a president or somebody, I turn it off right away. So here is Tony's explanation for his practice.
1: Oh well, I when I was really little, I used to find the on Sunday morning, I'd, my parents would be sleeping, and I'd turn the radio dial, listening for something. And the short end of the dial, all the higher frequencies had preachers on them, and those were really boring. Although there was one, it was a really good one. It was somebody was imagining a. A football game between the forces of good and the forces of evil and Jesus was the quarterback for the forces (laughs) of good. That was kind of fun but mostly it was boring and what I wanted was for Rush Limbaugh and Michael Savage to be like them, boring to me, you know, And, and so it was a process of desensitization. I would listen and as soon as I got reactive I'd hit the off button and for Several months, my goal was to get to the freeway entrance with the radio still on. <laughs> um, but over time, I came to to hear different things and what they were saying and to be way less reactive. And now they're boring to me. They don't light me up or, um, you know, it's, I sort of think, well, what do you expect? <laughs> You know, if our expectations, our expectations are built mostly on delusion. And so when things don't go the way I would think they ought to be going, I I think to myself, what what did I expect? How was I kidding myself?
0: Did it make you, uh, well, yeah, I guess, I guess you could say, if I'm less frightened of listening. See, because my fear in listening is when when I turn off right away, is that I'll get so upset that I won't feel good. But I guess you overcome that fear by listening long enough so that it doesn't upset you.
1: Well, so as soon as you, as soon as I would get reactive, I'd hit the button, so I didn't get too upset. But then I'd notice what that was like, and then I'd be thinking to myself, "How could he say that?" Well, I don't know. I don't know.
0: No. But you know, I was thinking this is maybe not a good cognate. When I was a child, my my parents were quite devoted to uh, uh, at least my grandparents whom I adored to to synagogue observance and I liked to go with them. And I still like to go and I enjoyed liturgy because I thought it was interesting and beautiful and an art form and I never believed it. I didn't think actually it was true. And uh, on particularly penitent days when the the clergy would be admonishing the, the people that this was your time to make amends for the things you've done wrong, and the Book of Life and the Book of Death are both open. I, I thought it was like a pageant play. It didn't worry me at all. I just thought it was what you did. But I'm still there. Of course, the clergy has changed. They don't say that
1: now. But, but you were saying that you've had those feelings about a lot of the Buddha catechism, the, Buddhist, the or at least the traditions catechism. I did, because I didn't believe that
0: Buddha was born out of his mother's armpit, and that he walked six steps and said, this is my last lifetime. That's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Sure. No, you don't believe that. You're teasing me. I want to ask you, what was your seminal moment um, in your whole Buddhist career?
1: Well, you know, there were there were a couple. They that, that, but they, they were they the the most profound one happened at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and uh, John Peacock, who is a British scholar who translates in 14 languages, including ancient Chinese and Tibetan and Sinhalese, and he's you know I, I went to hear him he's a british scholar and he wrote on the whiteboard he wrote nibbana equals upeka nibbana is equanimity and i thought oh my gosh i underst- i i can understand equanimity this nibbana business this transcendent something else uh, who knows what they're talking about and i don't think they do my my story and i'm sticking to it you know Nibbana equals a pekka that that centered the buddha 's whole uh, project in me i could I, it was a personal it became personal that way rather than some metaphysical thing that to chase for four more lifetimes if you 're really good and eight more if you 're not good and you know but but it 's not an understanding that um, is widely shared so I've, I, I talked with uh, Scholar monks and said, What's the difference? And they would say, Oh, well, Upek is just a psychological state, but um, Nibbana is the transcendent realm, which, and I think of it sort of this is my commentary here, sort of like a spiritual third rail. You touch it and you light up, and then everything is all good. Um, It's a
0: transcendent experience. Oh, yeah. Non dualism, yeah, 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 is
1: the word. All that that stuff, all that stuff. so it, this the bringing it home, all of a sudden, everything became personal. All of the teachings became personal and metaphorical. And um, the other thing that, that uh, he said in that, in that class was, we were talking about the two truths, the ultimate truth and the, and the relative truth. And he said, the ultimate truth is that relative truth is empty. That's it.
0: Who said that?
1: John Peacock. Oh. He said, the ultimate truth is that relative truth is empty. And I thought, or that there is no ultimate truth. You know, the notion of ultimate truth is a conventional notion. And that, that was, those two things just totally turned my, my practice. Uh, There's no such ultimate truth. Well, ultimate truth is a conventional notion. It uses conventional words, you know. And, and, uh, and the ultimate truth is that <laughs> conventional truth is empty of essence, empty of thingness, empty of substance. Everything is. If everything is in process, everything changing, there aren't really any
0: things except in grammar. There is in current usage. There's a lot of interest in. Uh, entering into a non-dual state. There are whole non-dual practices. What do you think of non-dual? What does that mean for you?
1: It's an idea. I, you know, it, it, it's sort of in the same areas as objectless awareness. And I'm not sure what we mean by awareness, if there's no object. The Buddha was pretty clear that all consciousness is dependent. All mm-hmm. consciousness, awareness is dependent. All awareness has an object. If there's no object, in what sense is it conscious? Mm-hmm. So non-dual. People are trying to put words to describe mm-hmm. a particular experience, and um, and in the process they reify it. They take an abstract notion mm-hmm. and then make some reality out of it, and then believe it.
0: Well, but what well, in your experience? In your experience, those people who have that. What do you understand as the benefit of experience? So someone says, "I'm going to a retreat to experience the non-dual." What do they? What do you understand about what they understand they're going to be like after they
1: experience? I'm not entirely sure what they're thinking, but I think they want something blissful and otherworldly, and they want to get enlightened. And there's some of that going on, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure I know what they have in mind because it doesn't really. Uh, resonate with me, uh, and and that's just me. You know?
0: That's I mean, not what the Buddha taught.
1: I don't I don't see any evidence of that in in any of the early texts. I think a lot of that was overlaid. You know, the Buddha taught twenty five hundred years ago. It's interesting. the new The new dates his new dates were were four hundred and eighty four BC, which is just twenty five hundred and one year ago today. Um, so, the, you know the from then to now the the teachings that we have come feel to me like the end of a 2500 year game of telephone you know and the, the question is how do you tell the signal from the noise because you know people a lot of the people who transmitted the dharma at the time or the teachings they were t- transmitting weren't necessarily meditators they weren't you know they were they were brahmins who were hanging out in the monastery and they took, took over jobs um, memorizing and reciting and sprucing things up and adding things in <laughs> and uh, clarifying where, you know, where clarification needed to be because the Buddha didn't seem to quite articulate it right.
0: So I... I uh, I want to go back to what you said about that upeka um, is Nibbana. mm mm-hmm. Because that, when you said it to me on the phone last night, I thought that is a very nice concept. I like that. that uh,
1: nirvana is a verb. People don't recognize that it's a verb. It means to go out. It's an intransitive verb. You know, it's... it's mm-hmm. So actually is samsara. So you can samsara or you can nirvana.
0: <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know. Uh, you want to go samsaring today? You, you can. Or, uh, Let's
1: go dukkha. <laughs> verb. Think of it as a verb. It's something we do. It's not. It's not something with an essence that we get stuck in. It's not a tar baby thing. It's
0: so if I was going to say I wanted, I'm going to let's go out and have a day of nibbana. It means that'll be a day. It will be a day in which, if if think about upaya, in which we'll make an effort to hold everything in the widest possible understanding. That. Uh,
1: you know, when, when, asked, when asked what Nibbana was in the texts, uh, the answer was the, the cessation, the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so when pl- experience is pleasant, we can enjoy that. When the experience is unpleasant, we won't enjoy it. But when we react to it with aversion or with clinging, and when we expect it to be different than it is, that expectation is really huge. We set ourselves up for disappointment. We say, yeah, I know everything's impermanent. Oh, no, I broke my favorite mug. You know, I lost my pen. Oh, those were... You
0: know, we... I think a lot of our moments, if I was thinking about it recently, are dismay, dis- dismay and disappointment. Uh, I've been thinking, instead of... Uh, when I teach uh, Vedna awareness, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, because one of the ways of practicing mindfulness is not what's happening, that's a breath in or a breath out, that's a sound, that's a, that's a feeling, is instead of saying the name of it, you could say, what's the feeling tone that comes with it? And uh, as Tony just said, it could be uh, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And my own sense is that not much, they're certainly neutral experiences, but you don't notice them because they're neutral experiences. They don't do much. Except they, they, they could be a source of delusion.
1: We, one, of the things, one, of the, one of the things that, that uh, we've been doing in the prison is measuring Vedana. So let me, let me give you this as we call it the, I, in my, my group in Davis we call it the Vedana meter, but in prison I call it the mindfulness meter. So uh, it's this 1 to 10 scale. So the idea is, and and in my mind, I use a a scale that goes from 0 to 10, and it's a gauge. You can do this app any way you want. It's a mental app. You you can dress it up however you want once you get the idea. So it goes from 0 to ten, five being neutral, 10 being an ecstatic state that, well, you just don't get to 10. You approach, maybe, but... Zero is, if the pain were any worse, if the unpleasantness were any worse, you'd be unconscious. Five is neutral. So where is your feeling tone? You can, in the same way when the doc says, on a scale of one to 10, how do you rate your pain? On a scale of zero to 10, how are you feeling right now? Positive, is it a six? You're feeling a six and a half sometimes. Walking along, and the sun is out, and you go. Oh, it says a seven or an eight, or. But you can measure anything with it. You can measure. You can. You can measure your feeling tone in relation to any thought, or idea, or person. Pick a person, who you find difficult. And, on on that scale, just let the needle float, and ask where. Can you do that? Does it work for you? Mm-hmm. You know, and you can pick something that's someone you like. Someone that you feel good around, and watch the, where the needle goes there. You know, um, so we can we can do um,
0: we can measure that and create a mindfulness meter. You know, as you're doing that, I'm thinking that built into that is a soothing thing because you see, well, you know, I thought this is my this is my fooling person. But it's only a six and a half on the scale, so could have been a nine, fooey Because I have a feeling that much of the day we go around without saying these particular words, but thinking to ourselves, "Oh goody, oh fooey, oh goody, oh foolie." You go on the freeway, there's no traffic, oh goody. Suddenly there's traffic, fooey Then 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 goody, fooey goody, phooey. It, it, it They're out of the stuff I wanted for lunch, foolie. But then they get that, yeah. But but. Uh, my best um, my, what I enjoy most in terms of definitions of equanimity is Gil Frodahl saying equanimity is the ability to say this is what 's happening now let 's see what happens next. First of all, I love that because it always reminds the mind in case it got startled that there 's going to be a next you know which you think ah look what 's happening you don't know what's happening next. Might ameliorate the situation, might get worse. So I love that, you know, this is what's happening, let's see what happens next. And I think it's the definition of equanimity, it's the de- de- definition of mindfulness, the definition of uh, Nibbana, because it's not making a problem out of it.
1: And it takes effort. And it takes right, effort, effort is everything right is in there.
0: Yeah. Let's see what's in there, let's see what's in there. Let's see what's going on. Hmm.
1: I want to add one other thing about that meter because once you know how it works, calibrate it. So find things that mark those places on the. So for me, rubbing my dog is about an eight and a half. So you can. Ice cream only comes in at about a seven. Although there can be times when its value is more.
0: You know, this is a fun time to tell... I'll do it fast, because it's a little bit of a story, but it's a funny story. I was, years ago, teaching a mindfulness retreat at a retreat center back east in the Catskill Mountains in a a cool season of the year. A lot of rain. There wasn't actually snow, but it was cold. And one night, there was a tremendous uh, thunderstorm, and power lines fell over and there were no lights and couldn't flush the toilets and that place was cold and it was the two-day period between one five-day retreat and another five-day retreat and the people who had signed up for both and decided to stay were going to do the middle two days as a continuing retreat by themselves, keeping the silence without a teacher, but keeping the silence and doing the sitting and doing the walking We're eating breakfast, silently, and we're eating cold, hard-boiled eggs from the fridge, and nothing cooked because the the electricity was out. Eating cold, hard-boiled eggs, bundled up in sweaters because it's cold, Um, maybe cold soup from the night before, and we're eating quietly, everybody's, and somebody says, uh, and I had taught them not fully or, or good, I had taught them pleasant, unpleasant, a little bit pleasant. Somebody says, "This is unpleasant." They say it out loud. It's quiet. Somebody else says, "This is really unpleasant." Somebody else says, this is, really, really Somebody else says this is really, really unpleasant." Somebody else says, "Be a really pleasant idea." Oh, I have an idea. We could go to um, Poughkeepsie and spend two days in a uh, motel and come back when they fix the electricity. Somebody else said, that is a very pleasant idea. (laughs) 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 So, it doesn't mean when you say pleasant, unpleasant, you you grin and bear it. Sometimes you have to, but not always pleasant, unpleasant, 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 I'm going to get a sweater, you know, let's go to Poughkeepsie. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I want to. I want to offer one other practice that I think. I'm sorry to change the subject, but I want to make sure that I, I get it in because people have found it useful. Some of the guys I've I I spent some I've spent some time doing mindfulness based pain management, and some of the guys, if you think your health care is bad, um, some of the guys come in in pretty bad pain and they don't get meds, of course, because, it's prison um and so to try to to begin to give them to teach them how to even bring up mindful attention at all sometimes is a challenge and one guy I was working with couldn't sit still he had such pain in his neck that he couldn't sit still for more than about 30 seconds he had to keep moving so we we developed what we now call the three breath trip and the three breath trip is anytime anywhere Don't have to close your eyes. Don't have to change your position. Don't have to stop or anything. Just bring your attention to the sensations of your breath for three breaths. And I said, why don't you try that three or four times a day? I mean, I'll settle for a little bit. And he came back next week and he said, I'm doing it 50 or 60 times a day. I said, geez, what's going on? He said, well, I watch a lot of TV. And when the commercial break comes on, I do three mindful breaths. Not every commercial, but every break in 6 weeks 2 months he, you could he was changing it was just amazing um, and so now i i consider that almost a, uh, an independent practice there are people who I, I i give that as and people use it a lot anytime anywhere and now when i bring it up people come back later and say that was just really really useful so for me now anytime i get in an elevator if i'm not talking to somebody it's just a a trigger for me, three breaths, on an escalator same, come to a red light holding the steering wheel you know, just to remind, and then other times put my hand on the doorknob to go out in the morning three breaths as I'm going out just, it brings the attention back to the present moment in your walking around life, not just on a cushion and uh, so I just wanted to make sure that I didn't forget that one, because people well, find that really useful
0: I think that that's very useful I mean, anything that you build in as a Uh, momentary, or two or three momentary uh, focuser of attention. My practice is every time I walk up a flight of stairs, I walk up this flight of stairs, or up top stairs, or there's 35 steps that go up to my house. Every time I do it, I say to myself, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. There are 35 and if I have a certain amount of pleasure, I can still walk up 35 flights, of 35 and count steps, 35. and count. But I do it, and I started doing it years ago, and I always do it. And I do it in other buildings, one, two, three, four. The other thing it does is, if you think, uh-oh, this is longer than I thought, this flight of stairs, and you start to get a little frightened, I'm not going to make it. You count, you, you say, 5, six, 6, 16, 17, 16, 15, 14, you, you redirect it so that you realize you're coming towards the end, but uh, you fool the mind. You can make up all kinds of practices, and, and we do,
1: and I've been doing that, it's, and they all have, con, they have consequences, so you can decide, for, you can set a practice rule, um, just never to be late. Or And then, if you actually decide to do that, then you find yourself leaving early a lot, paying a lot of attention. It changes your behavior. You can say means um, you can set up any kind of a practice rule that you want i 'm going to do anything i 'll do everything I, I commit i say i 'll do i 'm going to do, even if you I change my mind later. And think I'd rather not or whatever, I'm gonna do it. So it makes me very careful about what mm. I So you can set up practice rules about about anything. Um, I one of the ones that I that I like is the, the monk's rule of not eating afternoon. You don't so, eat afternoon? No no I I, I I do. But every once in a while
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> every once in a while I I I do it for a couple of days because what does hunger feel like? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, when we get, get a little bit of it, we just throw something in the mouth that, turn it off, we just, it's vipavatana, unpleasantness arises, we want to make it go away. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you can set that kind of, all kinds of training rules, so you know, just be creative and constrain <coughs> your behavior somehow, and you discover how your mind works.
0: But, and, and I think that the thing that really is important is the idea that you can change your mind you can really
1: it will change that's for sure build
0: in certain habits of the mind i wanted to name the first book i wrote i changed my mind and the the uh, the publisher did not let me name it that because they said it won't sell books people will say you know i you know, what's the name of your new book i, I changed my mind well, So what was it you know that uh, Uh, That's like, who's on first, you know, uh, that's peculiar to people. So I couldn't do that, but I think it's still a good idea. I see that it's coming on 12 o'clock, so a couple of things I want to say. First of all, I forgot, this is Susan, who's been coming forever. Susan has uh, created, invented this sitting spa, it's made with tennis balls. But it comes in this nice package. It's called Sitting Spa. It's for sale in our bookstore, and it's to make your sitting better. So, by all means, check out Sitting Spa uh, it there. Uh, I will not be back, I think, for two weeks, and then I will. If anybody knows? I'm gone for the month. It says May 24th. So. Where are you going to be? I'm going to be in Russia. Oh. I'm going to be in Russia, floating down, if we still have diplomatic relationships with Russia. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. That I'd like the best of what everything. Well, I love you, of course, but uh, that upeka is Nibbana is the same. Because I think that the name of the game is to not let your mind run away with you. Not contend, and not contend with the world. To and deal not, with the world. Don't fight with anything. Don't fight with anything. I meant it when I said before that I'm conflict avoidant. But I'm conflict avoidant as a, as a life you know, habit. But also, in my mind, I don't want to get upset and mad at things. So you get mad at life, it always wins. I mean, I can't win.
1: Byron Katie says, if you fight with if you argue with the way things are you lose, but only 100% of the time
0: yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it so I'm not going to do it, whatever it is say, let's do it this way, okay yeah, no. uh, um, so what I want to say, okay uh, are you coming back next month when I'm gone, or?
1: Uh, I don't uh, think so
0: so maybe Heidi is one time anyway would you come back again if we invite him? Me- you should we invite him? He's one of my most fun friends, because when I have a Dharma problem, I call him and say, "This is it i you know and he and I are both reading i have read I'm reading after Buddhism you're finished with that
1: he has another book after that
0: I have ordered it since I talked to you yesterday that's yeah. called Way after Buddhism no you
1: know it's called secular Buddhism
0: Secular Buddhism and I'm sorry, yeah. And this is my new Reinhold niebuhr book that I thought you and I might sometimes study. Because it says, uh, talking about the question of, um, I didn't bring my, uh, no, I did bring my glasses. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. (laughs) Oh, queen of mindfulness. I, I can. Uh, uh, but the, there's a very big essay in here, and called "Moral Man and Immoral Society," and he's dealing with this thing of mostly you meet people. When we say, because uh, when we talked in the beginning, um, people good or not good. Most people pick down, pick up other people that fall down in the street. Most people are moved by tragedy. Tret- nah. Depends on the conditions. Depends on the conditions, of course, but. If you ask people, if I ask this group of people, when your mind is, when your minds are relaxed and at ease, uh, do, you, do you find that your mind is more forgiving and more spacious? Yes. Yes. More tolerant? Absolutely. Less irritable?
2: Well, the oh yeah, no question. Active, engaged. So I
0: like to extrapolate from, uh, extrapolate from that. See these people? I, also, I bet the whole world is like that. But I bet you don't think so. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> we'll come back and talk more about that because I don't think so either. Given the what the looking at the world, we were,
1: everybody was so surprised because we had no idea what the world was like. We were just, you know, talk about a,
3: a bubble, you know, a delusional bubble. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. The morning people were incredibly raw. I got the feeling people didn't know whether the freeway
1: would be out there in the morning if they went to drive on it. I taught that evening in, in Half Moon Bay and it was different. People had spent a day in the world and had to encounter people people at their workplace who didn't vote the way they did. And so there was there was um, a little bit of a skin. Uh, there was a, but uh, that morning session was pretty was who was incredibly raw. Yeah, I recall it too.
0: Will you make some sort of closing invocation and ring the bell? Oh. I don't do a dedication of merit because I don't believe in merit. Uh,
1: yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, well, you know, merit's not a bad metaphor if you just totally take it personally. It's just what you do for yourself. I mean, merit is your your good karma, and karma isn't what goes around, comes around, but well, you don't want to get started. Right? <laughs>
2: Next time.
1: <laughs> Next time. Um.
3: Hmm. I, the only thing I
1: can think of is that is just the wish that all beings find peace, and that, that begins with us. And uh, if we can avoid... Making things worse. We, we help that much. Don't make things worse. I
2: think
0: we should write a, you should write a Dharma book called Shit Happens Don't Make Things Worse.
1: Yeah, you can uh, write so it easily, could be my better. wife can write so easily, I sit down and <laughs> yeah, don't do so good.
0: What was the third one? Shit happens. Uh, we usually make it worse. worse.
3: We don't have to. We don't have to. Here's how. Here's how. And here's the Eightfold Path. That'd
0: be a good, that would be such a good book title. Here's
1: the, here's the Eightfold Path. Hmm? Can you
3: turn off this.
0: There you go.
1: Excuse me. I just want to thank you both for this conversation. Oh. This my pleasure. It was my pleasure. You, you bring us some insight from your work
2: into what it's really like to do, do something you know, Yeah,
1: yeah. Russia? It's, 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 it's an incredible place. out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sorry about my cell phone. I just am I want around this I just feel I Thank you. we actually sort of reached a
2: stable state where the limitations seem to have set in and now have with the whole life.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed,
3: please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.